0: Greetings, listeners. This is Hooting Yard on the air. My name is Frank Key, and it's four o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. Every now and then, I'm asked by people, Where did the name, where did the title Hooting Yard come from? And I avoid answering the question. I have two methods of avoiding answering it. The first is to emit a very low, almost inaudible groan of despair, a bit like. Urgh except less audible than that. And the other thing I do, if someone says that to me, is I point up into the sky and say, look, look, a flock of seagulls. And the person turns to look. And then, cleverly, I've managed to divert the uh, conversation onto uh, an extravagantly bouffanted pop group from the 1980s. Anyway, enough of that. Um, Two weeks ago on the show, I read a story entitled, Some Ponds, A Hotel, The Hollyhocks. This story is called, Some Hotels, A Hollyhock, The Ponds. One, Some Hotels. There are seven hotels. Their names are Crone, Crustacean, Flask, Infection, Miasma, Unbearable and Vagabond. Each is built of cheap and rusty metal and perched on the edge of a precipice. There are seven precipices, over each of which a scientist of note has plunged to a watery death during the past two weeks. In chronological order, those who plummeted were a botanist, a physicist, a phrenologist, an orologist, a laboratory git, a bacteriologist, and an unspeakably mustachioed vivisectionist. Each had been a paying guest at one of the hotels, though none of them hurtled over the precipice upon which their own hotel teetered. The phrenologist, for example, breakfasted upon porridge in the hotel miasma, then threw herself from the pocked and crumbling cliff face adjacent to the Crone Hotel. Or was she pushed? It is in hope of answering this question that the indefatigable Hungarian detective Bulent Hellbag has trudged onto the scene. He is seven feet tall, sports a raffish wind cheater, and has booked into all seven hotels within the space of half an hour using a variety of aliases and disguises. At the Infection Hotel, he is known to the desk staff as Mr B. McGrooge, a Scottish safety engineer of sober, mien and modest wealth. His only luggage, a small orange tote bag. At the Hotel Vagabond, he has them convinced that he is Baron Glub von Glub, a fanatical winter sports enthusiast, lewd and boisterous, who displays a fine array of bobsleigh championship medals upon his turquoise tunic. For these, and for his five other identities, Detective Hellbag has all the required documentation, forged passports and letters of transit, doctored photographs, beetle diagrams and other seemingly personal paperwork. At 4pm, firmly established in all seven hotels, he is to be found pasting a piece of blotting paper at head height to the outside wall of the Station hotel laundry room. Such attention to detail is the mark of the great detective and Hellbag is in no doubt as to the sheer magnitude of his ratiocinative genius. As ever, he has imposed upon himself a strict timetable for solving this case. He is confident that he can wrap it up within 48 hours. Indeed, such is his arrogance that he has overlooked one startling fact. The major domo at the Hotel Unbearable is Hellbag's brother Rolf, whom he has not seen for ten years. The last time they met, in vegetation and in awe, they made a handshake last for hours. Then, two days later, Rolf was sentenced to hang for the brutal slaying of a loopy Cop's ship's captain, whose skull he smashed to pieces with a stolen windigo. 2. A Hollyhock The most luxurious of the hotels is the one beginning with B, its tremendous gardens, festooned with foliage, were until recently tended by a retired cake person whose glaucoma and rickets gave him increasing gyp. Following a series of incidents involving his shark, or his cardigan, he was... I'm, I'm sorry, none of the hotels has a name beginning with B. Um, I'll, start, I'll start again. Two, a hollyhock. The least repugnant of the hotels is the one beginning with F. Its gardens are neither tremendous nor foliage-riddled, nor tended by a half-blind, shark-owning person of cake. Indeed, it can hardly be said to have a garden at all. The floor of the lobby is covered in soil or mud, and ridiculous chaffinches witter from the rooftops. But the only foliage to be seen in the flask hotel is a huge cement hollyhock in the dining room, placed there by a permanent resident, Imber Sedge by name, whose often truculent gob ill befits a man of the cloth. Cleverly concealed atop the very pinnacle of the cement hollyhock is a sliver of pugsley imbued with monstrous properties. It is at once refulgent and calcareous, dismaying and arcane. In years past, those who sought to possess it had had their heads boiled, Three weeks ago, the surly imber Sedge implanted the hollyhock in the hotel which he called home and proceeded to paint it with a thick impasto of gaudy colours. He had stolen the paint from a wooden hut next to one of the nearby ponds, not realising that in doing so he was burgling the nerve centre of Rolf Hellbag's frantic and unholy criminal schemes. Within days of Sedge's theft... A stench of vinegar hung in the air about his head, and his tongue grew furry. 3. The Ponds On Wednesday, Bullant Hellbag toured the nearby ponds. His Bakelite satchel contained the tools of his trade. An ads brooches, chalcedony, a dubbing tray, experimental poultices, fontoons, Gewgaws of every description, hat paste, illegal spode, a javelin, caca, lettuce, monkey puzzles and night soil, old gas, potato peel, quartz, recent newspaper cuttings, stigmata, a tapeworm, uncanny torchlight, vestiges of trouser, wild goo, a xiphoid rug, Yorkshire pudding and zibeline. He knew his onions. The wind came in from the sea, echoing with the wails of the ghosts of perished scientists. Hellbag placed his satchel on a knot of furs and carefully untied the rope with which he had bound the massive cement hollyhock to his body. Easing it to the ground, he spat and spat and spat. Then he hurled the hollyhock into the deepest of the twenty-six ponds. Preening in the drizzle, Hellbag congratulated himself on another case successfully concluded. Minutes earlier, a ferocious pack of half-starved brontosauruses had been unleashed from his brother Rolf's laboratory in the cellars of the Hotel Unbearable. As the great detective puffed on a cheroot, they lurched over the brow of the hill, lumbering towards him, relentless and vast. And now as a special treat, um, I'm going to read some Hooting Yard fan fiction. This recently appeared on the internet... um, at HTTP colon two forward slashes shuddery.blogspot.com Hooting Yard Fan Fiction a collection of short fiction intended as a tribute to the denizens of Hooting Yard written by someone called Tristan Shuddery and I have to say um, I read this and I thought I must have written this it's so... I don't know. Anyway, here it is. It's a story called Dobson's Uncanny Time Pod by Tristan Shuddery, and I swear I did not write this myself. Dobson was prone to listlessness. Lacking inspiration, he would generally eschew his escritoire and visit sawdust-strewn dockside taverns. When these moods took him, he could be found swilling stale grog and exchanging apocryphal nautical tales with peg-legged sea dogs. Indeed, it was under such circumstances in the Arctic port of Murmansk that Marigold Chew once again located Dobson and bade him translocate to climes more pleasant. Why, then, did he choose a milk-processing factory as his next home? It is clear that Dobson found this locale arresting. However, our sources do not state what caused his infatuation with this dilapidated industrial building on the frozen shores of Lake Winnipeg. Dobson's surviving work from that period provides few clues. On his arrival, he began work on an incomplete series of outre ornithological tracts, describing such topics as the nesting, mating and flight patterns of mythical, hypothetical and imaginary pond fowl. Growing weary of all things feathered, his later factory works were obscure ontological and theological essays. Fragments of a treatise comparing the theories of Trebizondo Culpepper with those of Goon Fang and Tundism suggest that Dobson's mood was becoming more introspective than usual. None of these texts provide any clues as to the purpose for Dobson's seclusion. Even the hellishly rigorous Concordance Dobsonia merely ums and ahs around these most perplexing issues. It is likely that our sorry state of ignorance would have persisted were it not for a single remarkable discovery made on the eve of St Bibania's feast five years ago. A weed-festooned pod was dredged from the tidal basin of the great frightening river. It was taken to the Institute for the Study of Uncanny Pods, part of the university at or near Ack, where professors Bindweed and Tadaki stripped it of its maritime encrustations. The professor's pointy tungsten tweezers removed barnacles and kelp, eventually revealing a glimmering metallic lozenge-shaped pod. Further studies revealed that the container was made from an alloy of tin and zinc with gaskets of gutta percha. On what the professors assumed to be its front could be observed an heraldic device, a plummeting cormorant traced in cerulean bip. Such was the quality of this pod's construction The pod scientists opined that it could have withstood the lashings of the frightening river for another hundred years before succumbing to its icy waters. It was sealed with monstrous wells and required the combined might of the village wrestling team to rend it asunder. Finally, the uncanny pod's contents were exposed. It contained a single burlap gunny sack, which in turn held a collection of scrawlings, knick-knacks and bitty-bobs. The professors had discovered a trove of original Dobsonia. They found unsent letters to legendary luminaries, unaccepted invitations to campanology conventions, incomprehensible drafts of unpublished pamphlets, empty files of gack and Goop. More importantly, they discovered answers to all pertinent questions about Dobson's lonely vigil in a milk evaporation plant on the western shore of Lake Winnipeg. Questions such as, What eerie phosphorescence lured Dobson to his industrial retreat? How did he write with naught but a tilly lamp to illuminate his scribbling? From which spigot did he eke sustenance over the long frost-bitten nights? Why did he then need to steal evaporated milk cans, and what possessed him to weld them into a pod? From whence did he obtain his welding gear? What possessed him to take his few remaining possessions and seal them in that pod? And how did that pod, having been sealed, come to be sunk beneath the treacherous waves of the great frightening river, the river upon which I plied my trade as the dredge all those years ago? I now know all of the answers to these questions, plus many more which would no doubt befuddle your puny mind were I even to pose them, If you were to glimpse but once at the Dobson Trove, which has been entrusted to me as curator, all this and more would be made plain. But you shall never see the treasures of which I speak. They are interred within the locked display cabinet in the basement of the museum at or near the gruesome copse at Ack. The museum will be forever closed and barred to you, for you are a landlubber and have been judged unworthy of its secrets. Be gone. It's a completely different kind of Hooting Yard show this week, isn't it? A story, but then some fan fiction, so something not written by me. And now news. Actual, real, genuine, current affairs news. Um, This is uh I, the only problem with this is that it's it's news from sweden and i must apologize in advance for the no doubt appalling nature of my um pronunciation of swedish words but um there's a there's a sort of poetry to this that is quite remarkable basically um what happens is there's a town in sweden where every christmas or before christmas They make a giant goat out of straw and put it up in the market square and um, I'm going to tell you what what happens. And this is entirely true. The strange history of the Gavillet goat began in 1966. A man named Stig Gavlin came up with the idea of making a giant version of the traditional Swedish yule goat of straw and placing it on Castle Square in central Gavle. On the 1st of December 1966, the 13-metre-tall, 7-metre-long, 3-ton goat stood on the square. At the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve, the goat went up in smoke. The perpetrator was found and charged with vandalism. In 1967, the goat was left unmolested. In 1968, the goat was again left unmolested. In 1969, the goat was burned on New Year's Eve. In 1970, the first goat burned six hours after it was erected. Two heavily intoxicated youths were tied to the crime. With contributions from several donors, the goat was rebuilt, this time of Reed's. In 1971, the local merchants who had previously built the goat abandoned the project, tired of seeing it burn each year. The Science Association at the Vassakolan Upper Secondary School took over. Their little goat was broken to pieces. In 1972, the goat collapsed due to sabotage. In 1973, the goat's fate is unknown. In 1974, the goat burned down. In 1975, the goat's fate is unknown. In 1976, a car crashed into the goat. In 1977, the goat's fate is unknown. In 1978, the goat was broken to pieces again. In 1979, the goat was burned before it was even put together. A new one was built and treated with fireproofing, but was later sabotaged and broken to pieces. In 1980, the goat burned down on Christmas Eve. In 1981, the goat was spared. In 1982, the goat burned down on St Lucia's Day, the 13th of December. In 1983, the goat's legs were broken off. In 1984, the goat burned down on St Lucia Eve. In 1985, the 12.5-metre-high goat first made the Guinness Book of World Records. It burned down in January. In 1986, the local merchants took over building the goat again. From this date on, two goats are built each year, one by the merchants and one by Vassar Colon Upper Secondary School. The big goat was burned down the night before Christmas Eve. In 1987, the goat was carefully treated with fireproofing. It still burned down the week before Christmas. In 1988, the goat was spared. Its survival was now included on British betting lists. In 1989, the goat burned down before it was even built. A public collection was taken up and a new goat was built, which burned down in January. In March 1990, another goat was built for the premiere of the film Black Jack. In 1990, the goat was spared. Many volunteers guarded it. In 1991, the goat was accompanied by an advertising sleigh, which turned out to be an unauthorised construction. It burned on Christmas Eve morning. It was rebuilt rebuilt, to be sent to Stockholm in a campaign to stop the closing of the 114 Regiment. In 1992, the goat burned after eight days. The Vassakolan goat burned the same night. It was built again, but burned again on the 20th of December. The starter of all, of all three fires was arrested. In 1993, the Vassacolan goat made the Guinness Book of World Records, measuring 16 metres high. It was spared this year. In 1994, the goat was spared. In 1995, the goat burned down on Christmas Day morning. It was rebuilt for the town's 550th anniversary. In 1996, the goat survived. For the first time, it was monitored by a web camera. In 1997, the goat survived with minimal damage by fireworks. In 1998, the goat burned down on the 11th of December, despite a snowstorm. It was built again. In 1999, the goat burned a few hours after being built. A new one was in place for St. Lucia Day. In 2000, the goat burned a few days before New Year's. In 2001, the goat burned on the 23rd of December. The starter of the fire, a a 51-year-old man from the United States, was arrested. In 2002, the goat survived. In 2003, the goat burned down two nights before St Lucia Eve. A new goat was in place about a week later and it survived in one piece in 2004 the goat burned down on the 21st of December three days before Christmas the goat was not rebuilt and this year the goat burned again in the first week of December so that's the story of the um straw goat the only thing I'm a bit puzzled about there is the Guinness Book of Records reference I mean is it is it is there a record for the biggest straw, biggest goat made out of straw? I can't think that there'd be that many competitors, but maybe there are. Who knows? Anyway, um, go to Gavle next Christmas, and you might get a chance to see the giant burning straw goat. Christmas is coming, of course, um, and you may, uh, unlike me, you may want to go and do some Christmas shopping and buy presents for people. Um, here's a here's some good self-help books that you might want to pick up. You know the self-help section in bookshops are getting bigger and bigger and more and more titles. Um, these ones I recommend. Teach Yourself Petulance... Mucking about for fun and profit. An Idiot's Guide to Moral Turpitude. Fecklessness Made Simple. Learn to Doze in Just 24 Hours. How to Be in a Bad Mood. Lassitude the Easy Way. Making a Fool of Yourself for Dummies. An Idiot's Guide to Social Gaffes, Bluff Your Way to Pomposity, Five Simple Steps to Lying Around Aimlessly, Tomfoolery Made Simple, Teach Yourself Frowning, Make Your Own Faux Pas, and my favourite, The Seven Habits of Craven and Wretched People. This is a story about Istvan and Zoltan. Um, This is Istvan and Zoltan on Monday afternoon. Crikey! exclaimed Istvan. What in the name of heaven is that? His twin brother Zoltan looked up from the book he was reading. Istvan, calm down, he drawled. You know I hate to be interrupted in my reading, especially when the book in my hands is the Journals of Gerard Manley Hopkins, and I have just got to the entry for that most exciting day, the 27th of April, 1871, when the poet, quote, mesmerised a duck with chalk lines drawn from her beak, sometimes level and sometimes forwards, on a black table, unquote. How on earth can you immerse yourself in the prose of a a Victorian Jesuit, screeched Istvan, when I am about to be waylaid by a preposterously complicated mechanical contraption somehow imbued with almost human malevolence? Zoltan yawned. I've long been fascinated by Hopkins, he averred. "'Incidentally, were you aware, O twin, that the nuns whose drowning was commemorated in that majestic poem, "'The Wreck of the Deutschland, lie buried in St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Leytonstone, East London, "'and that I have placed flowers on the grave? Peonies, I recall, or mayhap they were pinks or pansies?' "'Eek!' yelled Istvan." Zoltan cast his eyes in the direction indicated by the frantic gesticulations his twin brother made to compliment his frightful eek. "'Golly!' gasped Zoltan, his eyes popping. For trundling at inhuman speed towards Istvan was a monstrous steam-powered engine, bulky and strange, built of tungsten, titanium and tin, and seemingly alive with a perplexing array of hooters, levers, flaps, nozzles, chains, bleepers, consoles, klaxons, chocks, struts, decoy shields, coddington lenses, batteries, prongs, bits of corrugated cardboard and Mackenzie beams. It was the indigestion machine! And I thought I'd end this week's show with a couple of quotations from some of my favourite authors. Um Lafcaddy O'Hearn, of course, the author of many books, including New Orleans Superstitions. And um Lafcaddy O'Hearn wrote, It is bad luck to carry a spade through a house. It is bad luck to travel with a priest. This idea idea seems to me of spanish importation and i'm inclined to attribute a similar origin to the strange tropical superstition about the banana which i obtained nevertheless from an italian you must not cut a banana but simply break it with the fingers because in cutting it you cut the cross It does not require a very powerful imagination to discern in a severed section of the banana the ghostly suggestion of a crucifixion. And um, that's all we have time for this week. Don't cut any bananas and um, I'll be with you again for more prose and, and stuff next week. Bye bye.